0: The first thing that came to my mind is from this professor, Charlie Rakoff. Yeah, his advice was don't get old.
1: So that was a good one. <laughs> <laughs> How'd you do that? That's, that's, that's a subject for research in itself. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> Hello and welcome to Developer's Journey, the podcast bringing you the making of stories of successful software developers to help you on your upcoming journey. I'm your host, Tim Bourguignon. On this episode 221, I receive Sergei Gobunov. Sergei is the co-founder and CEO of Axelar. He received a PhD from MIT, where he was a Microsoft PhD fellow. His dissertation was on designing cryptographic tools for the cloud, and he has since continued his work on in the cryptographic space by co-authoring many cryptographic protocols, standards, and systems, as well as teaching as an assistant professor at the University of Waterloo in Canada. Sergey, welcome to Dev Journey. Awesome, great to be here. But before we come to your story. I want to thank the terrific listeners who support the show every month. You are keeping the Dev Journey lights up. If you would like to join this fine crew and help me spend more time on finding phenomenal guests than editing audio tracks, please go to our website devjourney.info and click on the support me on Patreon button. Even the smallest contributions are giant steps toward a sustainable Dev Journey Journey journey. Thank you, And now back to today's guest. So, as you know, the show exists to help the listeners understand what your story looked like and imagine how to shape their own story. So, as is usual on the on the show, let's go back to your beginnings. Where would you place the start of your dev journey?
0: Yeah, great question. First thing that I can you know probably think of, not necessarily as a developer, you know, full journey, but like my, my first interaction and you know, just like engagement with computers and being fascinated by the technology is that when I was a kid, you know, my dad kind of got a computer at home, right? And, you know, first things you do is just gaming for the most part, right? And uh, my dad being kind of, you know, a networking IT guy himself, he really tried to, you know, minimize the time we do gaming. So he put like all kinds of passwords on it. You know, Windows was password protected, you know, BIOS was password protected and things like that. And I really didn't like those things. And so, I think my first memory of interactions is like trying to bypass all of those things. <laughs> so, I don't know for those of you that don't know, but you know, in the early days like, you know, the first thing you you turn on a computer is like a password on the BIOS, right? And then, you know, it's actually pretty easy to to reset it, right? Like old motherboard had, uh, you know, a switch you can flip or just take out the battery, the battery, right? And then the motherboard actually resets it and then you can kind of continue booting. And then so that was the first step. Okay, you pass that. And then you come to Windows, right? And Windows has a password. And then, you know, at some point you realize that in the early versions, you know, you could actually, like, Google lists of, like, administrative passwords that all work in those early versions. And so it didn't take too long to, to kind of crack those things. But I think, yeah. And then, and then you know, you, you kind of have to kind of keep it hidden and keep it secret for a while from your dad. <laughs> mm-hmm. So that, that, that's the first memories, you know. And from there, I think, yeah, kind of a very, you know, a few clubs, I think, at the... Know, middle school kind of high school a little bit of coding some some kind of programming competitions here
1: and there and then yeah it kind of went from there wow the, 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 your, your start reminds me of mine my dad said oh, i, I wanted to quote to game as well to, to play as well and say oh you want to you want to play and, uh, you know you're not getting a console it was the, the first uh, nintendo back then i say you're getting a, a mac it was one of the early macs you you can play with that probably <laughs> go figure it out <laughs> <laughs> and by doing so he that, that was smart actually by doing so I really discovered how to use a computer how to f- install things how to find things uh, there was no online back then so finding other people with max you couldn't couldn't load any anything else and really by without knowing it I discovered the whole thing and it was hooked so.
0: yeah I mean I, I wish I had some of that flexibility I think my dad was like more strict so you know I was like always <laughs> had to kind of keep an eye on like you know what I was doing until he actually you know, went to a different city that he had to work for for a couple of years. So he was kind of on and off commuting. And then, you know, the computer was like left to me for the most part. And so like I took it apart, like I broke it, I think I fried motherboard a couple of times. And, but I think that's where you know, actually like some imagination actually starts kicking in when you don't have any of this supervision and can go wild.
1: Yeah, that's, that's true. And, and it must be a pain to have had kids like us. I, I have no idea how many times I formatted the whole thing. And I hope my, my, my dad never complained, but I hope he didn't have any, any data there that was, uh, that was valuable because I yeah. crashed the whole thing <laughs> every week also. So yeah, I, I wonder if kids nowadays still. Do this. I mean, when you have an iPad and you cannot really. You can't do anything, right? No. It's like, like, uh, there are no screws. How do you even open this? (laughs) (laughs) That's true. That's true. (laughs) Even even logically or on the hardware sense, you just cannot really screw with it. So, ah, they're missing something. I'm old. Anyhow. So,
0: I recently saw somewhere a game I didn't follow up and like didn't figure out, but it was like building like a Linux kernel in a game for kids. It sounded really attractive. I saw the title, but I didn't actually go and figure out what it is. But I think like now it's all like software that's trying to mimic some of this, probably like, early experiences that
1: you know some people had. Yeah, that's that's probably a good proxy just to to get a feel of it and. Ah. Anyhow, uh, I'll, I'll see when my kids reach this age. <laughs> we'll see what, they want, what what we'll do with them. Okay. So did, did you did you uh, fall into those clubs just because you were interested, or did you have already in mind the idea or hey that that could become something for later? How did you approach this in high school?
0: Yeah, no, pretty ad hoc, I would say. Right, like I didn't have you know specific like strategy. Or <laughs> anything else. I like, I think, kind of naturally you know, competitions and challenges, right? And like puzzles. Mm-hmm. I was not like a great student actually, you know, like in middle school and things like that, you know, in high school either. But I like challenges and I like competing, right? So, you know, it was a part of like some math competitions and like the way we were structured and organized was actually quite interesting, right? Where we had, we were taught by like some, some actually like faculties from local universities and then we had to compete, you know, between schools, right? So we're... I remember, like, some early challenges were like you're given sets of problems, and then you're you know trying to solve them, and then kind of you go in front of the board, actually present to everybody, and then the other team has to you know find faults in your solution, right? Uh, pub- and, you know, and and then you kind of publicly have this debate where you defending your solution, the other team is actually kind of trying to take you down. So I really liked those. I hated the whole like learning kind of a process for a year, so I was kinda of dropped out after <laughs> this the actual kind of a channel the competitions came out. Um yeah, and then programming there was like some interesting competitions. We lived in a small town, so it wasn't like there's, you know, too much kind of a of these things that was going on, but what was going on was you know quite interesting. And then, yeah, I think like my dad had like, you know, background in electronics and networking. So I think he like helped to create some of the early connections with the city that we were living with. And so we naturally just had a lot of, you know, hardware equipment at home and things like that. So you can, you know, play. And replace and fry and so on.
1: <laughs> continue on the streak. Uh, yeah. Okay, so, so at, at which point did you decide? Okay, this is going to be a longer thing that might become something for for my professional life as well, and not just hobby.
0: Yeah. So we. So I was born in in, in Russia, right? And then my family immigrated to Canada. You know, when I was almost sixteen, and yeah, at that point, you know, kind of, I would say like. The pressure kicked in, right? Where, you know, your family moves to a different country and, like, you know, they're like, okay, you know, you have to find the university, right? And the whole system is like very different than it was, you know, in Russia. And that kind of puts you on the clock in some sense where you're like in the last year of high school, right? And then, like, everything is different. The system is different. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, you're still figuring out like language and everything else. And then, like, you have to apply to university. The system is very different. So you have to think. It seems like, you know, kids in like in America and Canada like know some of those things when they're like six or seven. Like, okay, I have to take like these courses you know, for the next five years to get to this university. And when you kind of just dropped in, you know, you kind of have to figure it out on the spot. So that's where I had to, you know, think. There's a lot of early questions about what is the difference between computer science and computer engineering at the university. Or, like, I, mean, I never had to think about those questions, and you know, kind of choosing you know programs. To apply to and go to, and then yeah, I sort of chose you know computer science, and then kind of as I went through it, I realized that I actually like like a lot of you know security aspects of of, of things, right? So kind of doing a little bit of also kind of competition, like challenges on the side, and like you know capture of the flag. Competitions, will participate in it. So yeah, that was like super fascinating to me. So I definitely like, try to take more courses around you know, security, like forensics, like, kind of cryptography, love networking as well. So that that yeah was incredibly fascinating to me. So yeah, and I think from there it just kind of kicked in.
1: Okay, you mentioned in in in, in passing previously that you were not that great of a student in high school, and. Then it flipped and then you were passionate about the thing and, and everything went, went, went well? Yeah,
0: g- good questions. Yeah, so I was not a great student until I think I came to Canada, right? Where, you know, A, okay, things were easier. B, you actually don't have to do a, all kinds of crazy courses, right? Like to go to university, like you can actually focus and, okay, mm-hmm. like, you, you know, you pick some courses that I'm, that I'm good at that's actually interesting and, you know, you do well. In Russia, it was like very different where I we had like 18 courses, you know, and like you had to, yeah, almost like every semester you have 18 courses. And it was insane, right? And That's like, you lot, have yeah. to be good at all of them or bad at all of them. And I, you know, I just didn't like many of them for sure. So yeah. And again, like when we move to candidates sort or of puts you on the clock a little bit, right? And like, you know, there's a bit of a pressure. But then when I got to university, I think what I actually really liked is because that introduced sort of, you know, at least... In me, a little bit of a competitive aspect as well, right? Mm. Where I don't know, okay, this is a course that I actually like what I am doing, and I, I had this desire, yeah, I have like great marks. And you know, whenever there was team projects, I was telling to my team, like, okay, we have to like you know beat everybody, like we have to <laughs> come on top of this. So I don't know, for some reason, some of my competitive nature kind of kicked in at the university, and then they just kind of fell in, you know, naturally with a lot of the coursework that we were doing.
1: Mm-hmm. Okay, I see, I see. Wait, wait, it's amazing how having something that really, really resonates with you changes the whole game. It was, it was not similar, but in a way, it was for me as well. I really struggled with, with high school the whole time because I didn't see the point. And, and as soon as I started engineering studies and really see, hey, we're doing this because of that and we're doing this for this and we're doing this for that, suddenly, whoa, interest went through the roof and and suddenly I was interested in, in learning more and more and more and more. So for me, it was really this applying thing for you, the competitive aspect. And, and as long as you don't have this, well, blah, it's it's a struggle. And as soon as this enters the, the the picture, whoa, that's that's really cool. Yeah,
0: yeah. And I guess on that, right, like I think one thing to throw there is like actually giving more freedom and flexibility, right, like mm-hmm. to the kids. And I think, you know, again, like, You know, first days when like my dad wasn't like supervising me, I think like I started to play more same thing when we came to Canada, right? Like he just didn't have time. And so like kind of a freedom and imagination to kind of try different things, right? Like to figure out what you like, what you don't like, you know, I think is is sort of quite important. And uh, yeah, I think to me, that's what at the end of the day, you know, sort of worked.
1: Mm-hmm. Ah, very cool very cool so let's go back to your studies so you were in college and studying computer science with forensic with security with cryptography etc at what point did you say okay no i'm not ready for the industry now i i want to continue exploring this and and start the master's program and a phd program
0: yeah i'm trying to remember right now i mean i think yeah so i did a couple of internships right throughout my undergrad you know i think like the first one was like i an IT help desk or something. And the second one, I went to IBM to do, you know, some kind of database work. Then I did a couple of research internships. And I think by closer to the end of my undergrad, I mean, A, I think I got like a little bit sick, right? Like just like physically, I think I had like an infection and things like that. And then, you know, I felt like I wanted to continue studying without a lot of, you know, kind of a normal work sort of pressures and things like that, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I took some, you know, cryptography stuff, and it was actually with a professor called Charlie Rakoff. For those that like don't know, he's actually one of the co-inventors of zero knowledge proofs, right? So zero knowledge proofs is like super powerful primitives that allow people to kind of prove statements without revealing secrets behind them, right? It's an incredibly powerful concept. He was like one of the co-inventors. He went to you know MIT to study in the early days, so he was a professor at the University of Toronto, and at a Graduate, you know, summer course with him, and he's a an intense guy. Like he's super intense. I think like a lot of people, yeah, not a lot of people, I would say, you know, find it easy to work with him. I certainly, you know, first months, I think, of my summer internships was like, you know, f- tense every time I would go to his office. But I think what I saw there is like a guy that thinks just like nobody else. Okay, like the way he approached the problems, the way he kind of thought about them. Like his first lecture to me was, he was like, okay, can you give me a random number? Right. And like, first thing you think about, okay, you know, you cook up some random number, three, five, seven, two, four, right? And he was like, well, how's it random? Right. (laughs) He gives this whole lecture (laughs) for an hour. What is a random number? (laughs) There are no random numbers they're only randomly generated numbers. (laughs) The question is how you generate the numbers and how you prove that they've been generated in a random way. So it's a whole lecture for one hour, what randomness is. And so, yeah, kind of that summer, I think, was like really interesting to see how, you know, he had like a very interesting, you know, lifestyle. He was more on the senior side where he just had an opportunity to think like without a lot of pressure, without a lot of, you know, kind of a day, like regular jobs that I saw through my day internships and you know like deadlines and like tickets and whatever. And yeah, he just thought, and I thought, you know, I want to think like him,
1: mm-hmm. and I don't know how
0: to do that, but I want to learn how to do that. And I applied for grad school. I was really thinking between two areas, right? One is computer networking and cryptography, and I did quite a lot of work on computer networking as well. At the end of my undergrad, you know, worked on kind of various projects. I really loved a lot of the stuff that we did and then decided to do cryptography to mostly learn kind of how some of those people thought because I thought that to be incredibly fascinating. Yeah, and kind of, you know, continuing to do, you know, kind of cryptography work through grad school. Mm
1: -hmm. Uh, How do do one pick and choose your dissertation and and what you're going to work on for two, three years or, or even more maybe, I don't know. How did that process go?
0: So... I mean, it's different between master's and PhD, right? Like, so especially, mm-hmm. you know, in, in Canada where I did the master's and then I, I went to the States to do the, you know, PhD and finish there. For master's, like, I had a, I guess like a pretty good, you know, advisor just threw a bunch of papers to me. And he was like young. He just finished his grad school. I was I was actually his first student that, uh, you know, and he threw me a bunch of papers and I just kept on thinking and thinking, right? I... Yeah, you know, I didn't pick, I would say. I th- I was always thinking about, like, what are the interesting problems to solve, right? And, um, you know, just ask questions along the way. And then, you know, it sort of naturally shapes up. And then at some point, you know, after a couple of papers, some of, again, like my, I think, competitive instincts started to kick in where there were, like, long open, unsolved problems in the crypto space, in particular, like, how to construct, like, these objects, like, Attribute-based encryption, right? Like for, you know, f- for those that don't know, like it's a, it's a kind of a fine-grain encryption that allows you to encrypt the data and sort of selectively authorize decryption of it, right? Like traditional mm-hmm. encryption is like you encrypt and you can decrypt and nothing else, right? Mm-hmm. With attribute-based encryption or well, things like function encryption, I can give you a program that would allow you to decrypt only specific parts of the data or functions of the data. Mm-hmm. It's a really interesting concepts really interesting notions and many of those problems were unsolved for you know many many years some of them you know for over a dozen of years and then i think one of the problems i remember i started to think about and then you know my advisor came in and he was like Oh, don't bother with it. You know, I spent like two years thinking about it, right? Like, you know, I couldn't solve it, <laughs> and that, <laughs> that that flips me <laughs> usually. So, with
1: <laughs> no, no, the right button to to, to get you on attention and really focus on that,
0: with the right button, and then you know, keep on hammering, like throwing ideas at him, and like this and that. And I think we like, experimented, and you know, I think we came up and actually like solved it, which I think was pretty great. Awesome. <laughs> Yeah, so that that was.
1: It. <laughs> Do you think he did that on purpose, no, knowing that you were competitive and just to push you in the in this direction?
0: I I don't know. I don't know. <laughs>
1: We should talk to him again. It's be very, very it. smart to do that. Yeah. <laughs> that time. So I'll give him the credit. For that. <laughs> maybe you did, maybe you didn't. Um, what would you say is would be decisive for someone wondering if they should continue in academia and, and pursue uh, an undergrad or, or or switch and go to industry? What, what would you say would be the key aspect in going one toward one or the other?
0: It depends what you're looking for, right? And like, how do you see yourself, you know, five or 10 years afterwards. I would say like PhD on itself, you know, it's like a brutal path, right? You know, you have to be prepared for a lot, you know, you have to have a mindset. Okay, here's, I guess, the way that I think about it. If you want to learn and if you want to get better at something, Right with with potentially compromising your lifestyle for many, many years down the road, <laughs> you should do a PhD. <laughs> so, like the the saying was at the end of grad school, is like you know you start in your life when you finish your PhD, right? Like so, you like some people twenty five, some people like twenty six or whatever that is, and like the, and the, you know they they come out and all of their college kids that you know got jobs already, you know like bought cars, bought houses, had families, girlfriends, whatever that is, right? And they're like, okay, now I, now I'm about to do it oh, but here's a but, you know, you probably don't qualify for many of the jobs. (laughs) Especially especially if you did something very, very specific and, you know, unidirectional, you lost all of the skills that like undergrad taught you, Mm -hmm. coding, like programming, right? If you don't do that, like, I don't know if you're doing some special, like something more theoretical, and then you have to, you know, start again. So yeah, like I would say, if you want to learn, If you don't care about your lifestyle and and you you can take, you know, financially and kind of emotionally that you should do a PhD. If you want to grow as a developer, as an engineer, right, as a, you know, you know, as a contributor to, you know, various projects, then, you know, maybe kind of PhD is not necessarily the path to take. And, you know, you can kind of go to industry and. Of build your skill set just contribute to a lot of open source projects continue contributing to various you know startups larger projects and so on and so forth and you know experiment a little bit that way I <laughs> found that like some industries just amazing at being you know this educational sort of hubs and you know they have mentorships right they have interesting projects you can learn from you know some regular jobs of course will kind of drag you drag you down so you have to be kind of careful around that as well but yeah so I, I would say those are like the trade-offs do you want to work on interesting things? Or do you want to work on, you know, things that may have more direct, you know, impact and, you know, touch and like, you know, customer at the end of the day? Mm
1: -hmm. Yeah, makes sense. Makes sense. So you uh, went through this this PhD and then probably had, again, a decision point to to face. Do you want to continue in academia, go toward uh, more research, more probably teaching? That's probably where your teachings come from. And doing something else or doing something else on the side. Was it like this?
0: Yeah. So... Okay, I was finishing a PhD. I actually, okay, I had my dissertation and everything and kind of figured it out maybe about a year before I had to graduate or, you know, so I had all the papers okay. and everything. And I think last year I just spent mostly like l- looking around what else to do, right? So I kind of started to play with blockchains a little bit of learning that space, you know, so worked on like some early designs behind one of the protocols we shipped, ended up being called Algorand, which is a kind of proof of stake blockchain. So we did like some you know, early work in the blockchain. And then I found those things to be interesting. We actually tried to do, well, start, you know, a company with a professor from MIT, right? So at that time, there's not a lot of funding in a blockchain space. So, you know, I think like he tried to raise some, some capital. It was pretty dry in the market for, you know, for blockchain. And so I actually, I got a job at the University of Waterloo, but I delayed it because I wanted to start another company. Mm-hmm. So, and yeah, I mean, I, And so I guess like my last year of university, I found like this entrepreneurial, you know, spirits to be also another very interesting aspect. So that's why we kind of tried to do this project with Silvio. And I really wanted to try myself in entrepreneurship, right? And I thought like that would be really interesting to problems to, to solve on. I couldn't figure out why all the things I've been working on for the last five years are not used in the real world. It was fascinating and puzzling to me. I'm like, these things are going to change the world, right? Like, why isn't everybody using this? So let me go commercialize some of this stuff, right? <laughs> so this is like some first ideas. And so that, that actually ended up, you know, kind of the first company that I tried, which was around this, you know, encrypted compute, right? Where, mm-hmm. how do you take your data... Send it to you know an entrusted environment like a cloud environment and allow computations with while still preserving privacy. Right, privacy mm-hmm. meaning like the cloud operator or you know attackers wouldn't be able to get your data. So yeah, we started a company around that. You know, went through like a small incubator out of Boston. You know, raised a little bit of capital like from Intel Capital in the process. You know, had a couple of people working on this. And um, yeah, I mean, I think we were trying to, it was really new market. It was really, you know, early days. And I think we were, you know, experimenting. Didn't go too far, but I think I had a, you know, pretty fun ride. And then, you know, yeah, I spent a bit of time kind of a, as a faculty at Waterloo. And then I took a leave a short, kind of shortly after to work on our grant. So I, you know, went back to Boston, you know, put all my kind of research on hold a little bit. And then, you know, worked on the outgrand platform for, for a couple of years and, you know, kind of we, we took it to the market. And yeah, kind of since then I've been, you know, sort of back and forth between the university and sort of startups. I, I, I love, I think, actually working in startups. So I think that's something, you know, I kind of learned over the last five years. It just, it's insane. It's crazy. But I don't know. I think like my competitive aspects kicking again a little bit. <laughs>
1: <laughs> it is indeed. And I would totally understand why you would want to stay staying there. Um, why do you keep a foot in, in the academia? if it's so fun in the startup world?
0: Yeah, I mean, I think there's a lot of, I guess, experimentation work you can do in academia, especially with grad students that startups are not necessarily ideal for, right? So I have, you know, kind of a couple students that worked on certain projects that, you know, I just wouldn't dedicate, you know, kind of a startup resources on experiment in those areas, primarily because they're, Yeah, you don't know certain answers. You know they're they're experimental, right? And a startup, you really, it's good to be experimental and it's good to do R and D. But at the end of the day, like you know, you are there about building something that you know has to start have an impact. And so you know these experiments you will naturally have, but you still have to have a conviction that what you're building is going to work, Mm -hmm. right? And I think in a you know in academia and some of the research projects, you don't have to have that conviction, right? It's okay to to fail. And I think that's actually really important. And I I think for myself, when I was in in startup, sorry, not startup, in academia and in grad school, I allowed myself to fail, right? Like mentally, you know, and I said like, I'm going to work on this problem. This is going to drag me down. And this is fails, you know, six months from now, you know, I'll be okay with it, right? And there's like the the plan B and plan C, you know, what happens when this project doesn't doesn't happen. I think there are two types of people that I've seen, Sorry, I'm jumping back and forth, but
1: <laughs> oh, no, that's all right.
0: <laughs> but yeah, I think like I've seen two types of mentalities in grad school. A is just like very specific, very focused, kinda of driven by a supervisor that says, here's a problem you solve, here's a problem you solve, here's a problem you solve, and like you put yourself in this like mental box and a mental path the same as your, you know, advisor potentially took or is taken. Which is all right, but you know, I think it's like pretty limited in terms of just personal development. And then the second path where people are just like so obsessed about one problem that they spend like five or six years trying to solve it and then they then they fail. <laughs> so I think having at least to me, having, you know, a shorter duration for when it's okay to fail F, you know, was was quite important. But yeah, so that, that that's 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 the difference, right? And that's why I think, yeah, you know, it's 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 still interesting to do some of these like researcher work.
1: How do you approach this 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 risk taking versus failing versus still progressing with the the students or the candidate the PhDs that you follow?
0: It really depends on the student, I would say, right? You know, some need more, you know, some need this step-by-step, you know, supervision, right? Then you have to lay down the steps for them which I'm not a fan of doing, frankly, right? Like I th- I, I try to give people a courage to go on their own path. <laughs> and, you know, when they ask me questions, yeah, I mean, I, I try to, you know, flip it back at them with another question <laughs> sometimes. <laughs>
1: <laughs> the Socratic <Christian>, questioning style.
0: <laughs> but yeah, I mean, I, I guess like ideally I want up to explore, right? And like do this, this work. Not everybody is prepared to do that, right? Um, I would say, you know, some people don't have like the confidence of you know, I think it's about confidence building, right? Like during PhD, and there are m- many steps that will allow you to get that confidence. Like get an early paper, like accepted, you know, is like a confidence booster. Solving something, you know, is a confidence booster, and then and then you can like explore that. It didn't kick in even in me right away, like the you know some of this confidence to try those things. Like it was really about that after you know you solve a couple things, right, and kind of prove to yourself that you know you have some interesting ideas. And yeah, I mean, I I want to be. Creative with them doesn't work with everybody, right? You know, some students, you know, you have to supervise, kind of a, you know, give them a, a very well defined path. With some students, you know, you, you let them go on their own and kind of they figure it out and they float.
1: Mm-hmm. Okay, could you define the the, the difference maybe in in day to day or in uh, in uh, in point of view between a, a professor and an assistant professor? How do you do? You split the work and and what do you both try to do?
0: You mean like from titles
1: perspective? From yeah, titles or or positions or how you interact with the students?
0: Oh, I see. There's not a lot lot of difference, right? You know, I think like assistant professor technically is somebody who just doesn't have tenure. So, you know, they have to like work and like publish for five years and then you get tenure, then you become like associate professor. Mm -hmm. Then means, you know, I think under normal circumstances you you always have the job you know unless there's an extreme so you cannot be like kicked out of university right mm-hmm. uh, and then I think 5 or 7 years later depending on the university you know you promote promoted to like a regular professor and so the thing that goes yeah the changes your interaction with students you know doesn't really change your obligations to the university change a little bit i would say you know typically mm-hmm. the more senior you are the more just like Administrative work that gets piled up, okay. <laughs> that, that gets thrown at you. <laughs> so that that's an unpleasant part of it. So you get introduced to you know like more committees and more yeah just kind of university administrative work. So I think like your time to actually do interesting research work and actually goes down. <laughs> so you know you earn yourself in some sense a freedom and you know a ticket to to be paid for many years. But the price that you pay is (laughs) the time and what you have to spend it on.
1: (laughs) Isn't it always? uh, As soon as you start to be an executive or something like this, uh, those responsibilities pile up as well. And if you don't like them, well, (laughs) deal with it. Um, and is there a difference also in, uh, or oh, there was not much of a difference so far, but uh, is there a difference between, oh, in, in, in the direction you can give to the the research? You you spoke about the professor really uh, really guiding their students, saying, well, do this, do that. It's probably because there is an overarching goal in his or her mind and saying, well, let, let's steer the whole department in this direction. Or it's really uh, each TA, uh, no TAs. a professor can, can say, well, I want to research in this direction and come who wants and let's go.
0: Oh, I mean, at least in North American schools, it's for sure, you know, the the latter, right? Where, you know, as a faculty, you get to pick your own research direction, you get to pick who to collaborate with. And, you know, you drive your own, you know, research program, you get to collaborate with some faculty that you want along the way. Yeah, like you you drive your own ship, right? There are definitely like temperamental themes that you know, would potentially make some research easier than others. So for instance, like a department may like have some funding for, I don't know, AI research, right. Or yeah, sure. photography research. And then, you know, you can submit a proposal there that kind of puts you in the, you know, having to work on that project in a proposal, if you got funding from that specific like department, right. Or specific, you know, institution. So yeah, I would say the school and the department serve sort of drive themes sometimes and Areas of focus and like the f- the funding that comes in kind of could be along those lines, but you, individuals like still have I would say kind of the ultimate say and control.
1: Okay, fair enough, fair enough. So at what point does Axilor enter enter your your mind or your 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 day to day?
0: Yeah, so. We were working on Algorand, right, which is a proof of stake blockchain and we took it to the market and you know the first year we really tried to find some kind of a you know product market fit in some sense, right? And you know great technology and so on and so forth, got an amazing consensus protocol, but what we found is that you know developers that wanted to build on Algorand still needed kind of composability with other ecosystems that they're used to, right? So for instance mm-hmm. Ethereum has a lot of assets right or and had a lot of assets at the time as well and so if you're a developer then building on our grant you want to be able to include those assets in your application right or you want to <laughs> be able to allow users to transfer them to to our grant and use in your application and so we were looking for you know some type of a kind of connectivity right between our grant and you know other blockchains and nothing was really available right you know not the protocol that you can take off the shelf no you know kind of a company that you can call and say, you know, we're looking for this. Could you help us kind of connect? And so, yeah, then we kind of realized that this would be a huge problem for many other ecosystems as well that we're building in parallel, right? Kind of Algorand was built with the goal of solving some of the scalability challenges that Ethereum had, right, to allow people to deploy their applications, have, you know, a faster settlement, have lower transaction fees and more throughput, many other approaches were taken in parallel, right? Solana, you know, Nier, Avalanche, kind of Polkadot, Cosmos, and and the list goes on and goes on. All of them, you know, experimented with consensus mechanisms, some of them more, some of them less. Many experimented with the software development, you know, framework languages on top of them and things like that. And then, I mean, to me, it was kind of clear that Assuming the space is gonna continue growing, you're gonna need connectivity across all of these platforms. I think some people had a thesis that this gonna, you know, Ethereum is gonna take it all. Ethereum, you know, 2.0 is coming. And I've been you know waiting for the last kind of five or seven years for that. So it's still coming, still excited. <laughs> <laughs> but <laughs> but in parallel, I think what we've seen is just like very different ecosystems growing, very different use cases, very different markets, very different approaches. I think it's fascinating to see all of that. And I think actually unifying that and connecting all of these, you know, islands, you know, and building, you know, connectivity tissue and like transport boats and planes across them is super interesting. So, yeah, and that's how we started, you know, to to work on Acceler with my co-founder, Yorgos. And uh, yeah, and since then, it's been, you know, another really fun ride.
1: That, that is really cool. And is this more or less related to what you did your PhD on? Or is it a different topic entirely?
0: Not really. I mean, we're using some cryptography, right? We use like some threshold cryptography, which, you know, I definitely like studied, didn't work direct, directly on it. But yeah, I wouldn't say it's it's actually directly PhD. I found more actual similarities with what we're doing now with earlier works that I was doing, like in software defined networking, right, which was, mm-hmm. you know, why I wanted to kind of study networking before grad school as well, where we were you know, building like software controllers to program in, to program like you know the the control plane and the routing, right? Like for for the internet. And so I think like actually a lot of the work that we're doing now is is actually closer to that. But cryptography and security is like a key component of all of all of this doing because like it's so critical. And I think yeah, all the yeah kind of just like an ability to think about those problems, right? And you know, an ability to you know reasonable security models is I think what you know ended up being incredibly incredibly helpful and again like having a conviction that something would work before anything and like this system is like actually incredibly complex i think i tell to my engineers that this is like like as a full stack it's probably the most technical that i've interacted with and worked with because it has so many components and so many you know interactions uh, across other different blockchains so there's like you know, three different layers in this. So you have to have really strong conviction this would work. (laughs) I remember our, you know, first engineer, Chris, that that we hired, he worked on like permission blockchains and is still kind of catching up on permissionless blockchain. And I think about eight or 10 months after we started working with him, when things actually started like gluing together and you can send messages end to end, he was like, wow, it actually works. (laughs) So he was like, you know, you think it would work, you know, that would work, but like, you know, kind of you spend, uh, you know, Millions of dollars towards something that you have to have strong conviction. So that, that that's incredibly rewarding, right? Like to me, to our, I think our team things like that's just the the experience, like the emotional roller coaster, is just fun.
1: <laughs> I believe, I believe you right away. <laughs> are, are there some topics that emerge in your minds while you were doing your your your, your PhD of applications of what you were, do, or what you were doing, theorizing, creating cr- creating solutions for, etc. That's could become startups in the future are still nagging at you and say, hey, we should do that. Oh, remember this, we should do that.
0: Yeah, I mean, definitely, right? Like, I think, A, okay, there is like the concept that we're working with, which I think actually, now there is a next wave of startups that is attempting to solve them, which actually doing quite well, right? And actually, Mm -hmm. those problems are getting solved, you know, potentially using like different, you know technology or different like algorithms under the hood, but like the same problems, right? And it all goes back to this like secure compute, right? And I think when we were working on it, it was, you know, definitely kind of a interesting theoretically and on paper. But now like we have seen those problems actually come to reality, especially around you know AI, right, or machine learning. Kind of the basic problem, you have like a data set which you want to keep confidential. You want to use some type of a cloud compute To Mm -hmm. perform, you know, to compute a model of this data set, right? Or, you know, or or if you have a model, you want to then, you know, allow, you know, kind of ship it and allow people to query it, right? But you really want to preserve the privacy of either the data or the model itself, right? Uh, So, kind of how do you do it in a, you know, in a secure way? And uh, there are now, I would say, like two startup trends that I'm seeing a the ones that are using like secure hardware to solve the problem so for instance things like intel sgx uh mm-hmm. which is like a, a hardware enclave on your processors that allows you to you know isolate the data or isolate a program so that's quite interesting and then the second trend where we're seeing kind of a new algorithms that have being built that are tackling the specific subsets of the problems right so for instance for machine learning where they're already efficient enough to be able to perform specific computations maybe they're not efficient enough to do a general compute right mm-hmm. or arbitrary computations but they're efficient enough to work for specific you know compute environments and uh, yeah i think like we have you know a few startups that are working on that space and i think those are quite exciting so yeah i, I still think it's kind of early in this space but i think you know we're ready finding find in those use cases and, and those applications i think it's just going to continue
1: accelerating that's what i think as well <laughs> it's, it's amazing what's what's popping up every day and you have to scratch your head and think why the hell are, you, are they doing this and if you keep scratching say, oh and, and oh oh and then you yeah. see what's what, what's emerging and it's really it's really 10 years 15 years in the future but it's it's amazing what's what's, what's popping up that's that's really cool so what's in your future further research further further R, and at some point another company and more entrepreneurship and 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 so on and so forth
0: I mean, all of those things sound great, right? Like, I think, <laughs> I, you know, I think like Axel is going to keep me quite busy for the foreseeable future. I think we're, what we're really building is like, you know, going to be foundational for the history of you know blockchains and kind of a very needed component in the space. So yeah, I'm you know kind of a 24-7 on that, at least right now. And I think you know will kind of keep us busy for a while. And then we'll see from there. I'm super excited about you know kind of blockchain distributed ledger technologies in general. I think they changed the programming model, they changed business models. You know, I think it's yeah, it's like the stuff that I, you know, I was not necessarily a part of, but, you know, in the nineties, right. And like 2000 where the internet was developed and like early applications. But I would say I probably touched that a little bit more than, you know, my, my peers of like my age, because I think like in Russia, things were a little bit delayed. <laughs> right. Mm-hmm. So I think I, t- I you know, I touched some of the like connectivity, you know, problems and things like that a little bit more. And then kind of saw it accelerated when it, when we moved to, you know, Canada, um, so those things are just like fascinating, right? And I think that's what we're doing now, you know, with uh, distributed ledger and blockchain technologies, and you know, definitely seeing a lot of parallels, but also very new programming and uh, you know, business models that I think will, will will start coming up more and
1: more often. Awesome. I um, mean, you've you've touched bases about your your professors before. And there were some some interesting characters in there. Has, has there been one one piece of advice from one of them that really changed the way you think, changed the way you, you approach, uh, approach things?
0: I mean a lot. I don't. I don't know if there is a, a single one. The first thing that came to my mind is from this professor Charlie Rakoff. Yeah, his advice was don't get old. So that was a good one. <laughs> <laughs> How
1: would you do that? <laughs> that's 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 the subject for research in itself.
0: <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. So that that was a good one. Let's see what else was there. Yeah, I don't know. I think a lot. Like I'm, I'm not sure if any. You know mm-hmm. that that thing for for instance. <laughs> <laughs> here to my mind right away is the most memorable advice
1: yeah, that's pretty good how are you doing on on the not getting old uh, not piece? great
0: not great i got a lot of gray hair over the last few years
1: well <laughs> no, that doesn't mean you're getting old it's too much startup and research and lifestyle put on the side probably well sorry, it, it's been fantastic that's a hell of a ride that's pretty cool thank you very much
0: awesome yeah no thanks so much it was uh, super super interesting
1: so where would be the best place to to start a discussion with you or continue this discussion with you
0: yeah, I mean, I think the best place, you know, just kind of a uh, you can DM me or follow on Twitter, right? It's a handle like Sergey underscore. You know, you can, yeah, DM me. I think my DMs are open, you know, kind of comment and we can start a discussion there and, you know, take it from there.
1: Anything on your plate that you want to plug
0: in? I think a lot of things over my plate.
1: <laughs> <laughs> You're two and a half meters wide, plate here. Yeah.
0: <laughs> yeah. No, I think a lot of interesting stuff. So I think, yeah, I'm I'm super bullish on you know what we're doing at Accelerate, right? and I think like new kind of connections and new protocols will be coming live. So you know, kind of stay tuned. We're going to be you know kind of releasing more information. So I think that will be exciting.
1: Okay. Then uh, we'll link to your Twitter, Accelerate Twitter, where people can f- see all these news probably popping up, and uh, we'll add all that to the show notes uh, down there. Awesome. Awesome. Thank you very, very much. Thanks so much for having me. And this has been another episode of Delper's Journey. And will see each other next week. Bye. Thanks a lot for tuning in. I hope you have enjoyed this week's episode. If you like the show, please share, rate, and review. It helps more listeners discover those stories. You can find the links to all the platforms the show appears on on our website, devjourney.info subscribe creating the show every week takes a lot of time energy and of course money would you please help me continue bringing out those inspiring stories every week by pledging a small monthly donation you'll find our patreon link at devjourney.info slash donate and finally don't hesitate to reach out and tell me how this week's story is shaping your future you can find me on twitter i am at timothep t-i-m-o-t-h-e-p or per email info at devjourney.info talk to you soon